What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Ben Golub is the serial entrepreneur and CEO who has played a key role in building six startups. Three of these were as CEO, including Docker, Gluster, and Plaxo. Today, he serves as executive chairman and interim CEO of Storage Labs. In this conversation, we discuss decentralized cloud storage, economic incentives, scaling software companies, acceleration of computing trends, and real-world use cases. I really enjoyed talking with Ben, and I hope you enjoy this one as well. Before we get into this episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Crypto.com. They're an all-in-one platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one place. You can join over 1 million users currently using the Crypto.com app. All you've got to do is go to Crypto.com and download the mobile app where you can buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one place. Crypto.com. Not only is it a great URL, but that's the place where mass adoption is happening. Go check them out at Crypto.com. Next up is Unstoppable Domains. If you've ever sent any crypto, Bitcoin or otherwise, to a long string of letters and numbers as a wallet address, you know it is scary. Your heart starts pumping, you're sweating. It's not a good feeling. You get really nervous. So now Coinbase wallets are adding support for .crypto and .zill domains through their partnership with Unstoppable Domains. They provide an all-in-one solution for blockchain domains. You can send money using a new domain like pomp.crypto rather than have to send it to some crazy long random string of letters and numbers, a Bitcoin wallet address. You can now just send it to pomp.crypto as a domain name and then I'll receive the money. Don't send anything. So if you want to buy one of these domains, you have to go to unstoppabledomains.com in the DAP browser to register and manage your domains. It's just like any other URL. If you want to buy a normal domain on the internet, you go to GoDaddy and you go and you auction for them or you bid on them or you buy them. If somebody else buys it before you, then it's gone. You don't get it. That's it. There's only one. Same thing with unstoppable domains in the decentralized world. Once the domain is taken by somebody else, you can't get it. It's gone. No way. It's off the market. So head on over to unstoppabledomains.com today and go get the domain you want before it's gone. Unstoppabledomains.com. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Ben. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got a special treat for you today. Ben is here. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, let's start with uh, your background. Um, you are probably one of the most educated people who have ever come on the podcast. Uh, let's just talk through kind of where you grew up, uh, various schools you went to, and sure. then we can get into kind of your entrepreneurial career. Sure, sure. So I, 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 uh, 
I grew up in Cupertino, California. So the story I like to tell, I was in third grade. We had a class visitor who wanted to tell us about this new thing he was working on, and it was Steve Jobs. Um, uh, so that, that started early, but um, my, my first uh, Silicon Valley job was cutting apricots. Um, so it was like 12 and 13, uh, making dried apricots, and then they paved over the orchard and they built apple headquarters. So I've kind of been in the thick of it for a while. But uh, yeah, my, most of my career has been uh, sort of in, in startup land. Uh, I've done eight startups, four as a, as a CEO. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, started out my career somewhat different. I, I was actually in, uh, in uh, a demography really in my, in my career. So I, was, you know, I spent time uh, in Africa working on, uh, on sort of rural health and things like that. Uh, then went to Uzbekistan to try and start a business school, uh, which had as its, uh, you know, our, our business case for the uh, for business school was that we teach people how to read a balance sheet and democracy and free markets would just happen. And that, and that didn't quite work. We, you know, we, we managed to teach a bunch of classes, but in every class there was somebody sitting in the back wearing an ill-fitting suit, never talking, taking copious notes. And eventually we, uh, you know, we ended up getting shut down by government. So that was my first scale startup. Um, but, uh, you know, since that time, I've been kind of fortunate. Uh, was early in Web 1.0, working for uh, VeriSign, sort of you know, this crazy idea of you can do transactions on, on the internet and do it so securely. Uh, so I ran the, uh, the security payments uh, um, uh, businesses for them. Then was uh, CEO of Plaxo, early social networking company, um, which uh, eventually we sold to Comcast. Uh, then CEO of Gluster, which open source storage company, uh, which uh, sold to Red Hat. Uh, then CEO of Docker, uh, which sort of launched the container revolution for those of you who are, those of your listeners who are in the computing space. And then most uh, most recently, of course, I, I came on board as as uh, executive chair of Storage, which is the decentralized storage. So we got to talk about uh, Africa is sure. a continent where most people don't think to go and, and work. Uh, sure. And then Uzbekistan is not the place that most people would think to go build a business. What was the, uh, the no. genesis <laughs> for this? I said, what was the genesis for, uh, for wanting to go to those two places? Uh, well, so um, uh, Africa, or, or you know, in particular, I was, I was in, uh, I was in uh, Kenya. And at the time, uh, Kenya had a, uh, had a fertility rate of eight, which means that the average woman living through her childbearing years would have eight kids. Uh, so you know, for the fastest growing uh, populations on the, on the planet, um, and there were 40 different uh, ethnic groups, each of which was growing at a slightly different rate, and sort of political power kind of depends on, at some level, on, on population. So, you know, for me, it was a really fascinating idea. Like, can you can you somehow take math and caring about people and combine them and find a way to intelligently help people? And and actually, you know, Kenya's turned out to be one of the big success stories uh, uh, over the past, um, you know, past 30 years or so in terms of uh, development, including, by the way, that they they figured out uh, this great Sort of decentralized way of doing finance using uh, using uh, using text messaging. So you know, a ton of banking and lending and sending money from the city back home all happens via text message. Uh, so it's pretty pretty exciting exciting place. Absolutely. And so when you finally came back to Silicon Valley, started working at the technology companies. Um, yeah. Just growing up there, I'm assuming that you uh, 
one, wanted to work at kind of these technology companies, but two, you had aspirations to one day have your own as well, or was that kind of a, okay. And and so let's talk maybe about Docker, which is kind of the the last one that you did uh, before moving into kind of the crypto decentralized uh, storage world. Um, Just tell us the story of Docker and and kind of how you guys built that company. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, so, so Docker um, is a, was it was a company that actually started life as as, uh, as something else? It was a, a platform as a service company, um, and used some underlying technology to do that. That was a radically different approach towards how do you sort of encapsulate workloads, if you will. Um, and um, Docker was a uh, you know, had this idea that said, hey, you know, the the way that people build, ship, and run code is it, it was almost like it was sort of in the pre-industrial age, if you will, right? Because code was took a long time to write, took a long time to update. It was done by large groups of people. Code was tightly tied to um, the servers that it ran on. And Docker had this idea of sort of, if you will, kind of creating the shipping container equivalent uh, for code, right? So that you could take, take any piece of code, put it in the equivalent of a digital shipping container. Uh, and of course, the nice thing about shipping containers in the physical world is that, you know, doesn't matter what's on the inside, the outside is always the same, right? Always the same dimension, books and bowls the same places. So in the physical world, you want to ship goods from point A to point B, you put them in a shipping container and uh, it goes from a ship to a train to a truck to a crane without ever having to be open. Um, and it can, you know, it's revolutionized, you know, the shipping container revolutionized physical transport and Docker really revolutionized the way that um, that code is written and shipped. Um, so everything you read now about cloud-native computing and you know, computing at a massive scale where workloads get split up into lots of pieces and run all over the place. That was that was Docker. And we, you know, did it kind of in, in good decentralized fashion, if you will, by building a massive community and being completely open source and um, you know, letting a thousand different approaches blossom and see which ones work. Um, and so it was a was an amazing ride. Um, and you know, something like I think the estimates are like 70% of all new uh, code that's written is written sort of using the sort of Docker Kubernetes pattern. What's interesting to me is yeah. uh, when people think of Docker, I don't think they think of decentralization and kind of they don't necessarily see um, huge comparison to that and what you're doing with storage. But there actually was uh, a lot of the same ethos, right? There's open source, there's decentralization, there's very community driven um, type thing. Maybe talk a little bit about what you know how intentional was that versus um, kind of you got pulled in that direction while build, building Docker because that's just where you guys saw traction. Yeah, no, no. I mean, actually, it was really quite intentional. I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we were, if you will, sort of going up against a bunch of really, really large incumbents. Um, sort of the, the VMware's and the large cloud providers were all doing things based off of virtual machines um, and a particular way of doing things. And, you know, we knew that, you know, a 14-person company is not going to change that, right? But a massive community can't. And so we were really very intentional in saying, "Hey, let's let's build a big community. Let's let's make the code open. Let's take a really decentralized approach." And we didn't use those, those terms, right? But we, you know, so, you know, like a really you know distributed, decentralized approach towards how we build build the code, how it gets adopted. We built lots of really open interfaces. Anybody could take the code, modify it, use it in ways that they saw fit, and um, that enabled us to have a massive community sort of spring up overnight. Right? I mean, this is one of the largest uh, projects kind of in the space of 
you know, six months, if you will, right? And, and, and um, you know, got to the point where billions of uh, downloads a day were, were happening in code that was sort of encapsulated in, in Docker. And, and that is really very similar to the open, to the decentralized ethos, right? I mean, that you, you give up control, that you, you know, you do everything in the open, you make interfaces clean, um, you sort of do sort of individual empowerment, right? You, you empower individuals to, to do what they want to do. You set incentives right, and then suddenly magic happens. Yeah. And that's something we have to do if you're, if you're a challenger as opposed to a company. Absolutely. And talk maybe a little bit about storage. So, you know, what you did at Docker was very, very disruptive. I think that there's been a lot of people who have said, oh, all these centralized uh, storage and centralized computing companies uh, are the incumbents. Uh, maybe one sure. way to disrupt them is through this decentralized uh, approach. Just why go and, and kind of help storage and, and kind of what's the model and how does it work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, um, I mean, you know, the, you know, sort of start from the, the, the first right. I mean, you know, death taxes and data are kind of like, you know, the givens in this world. And, and this past world, the world, this past year, the world created enough data to fill a stack of CD-ROMs that would stretch to the orbit of Mars and back. Um, and it's going to grow like 40% next year, right? So it, it, it's crazy how much data is created. Um, and yeah, some of that, a lot of that's cat videos, but you know, some of that is really critical information like that, you know, the, the cure for, for COVID or, or, you know, new, new forms of clean energy and things like that. Right? Um, and, you know, for most of computing history, data was stored locally. So you push stuff to a hard drive. And then we had the cloud computing companies start, you know, the, the Amazon AWS's and, uh, you know, the Microsoft Azure's and the, uh, Google GCP. Um, and they actually started out in storage, right? So they started their, their first service all of them offered was store your data, push your data up to there and, and store it. Um, and, um, you know, I think they're, they've done a great job, but there are, are a bunch of problems. I mean, first of all, cloud computing, centralized cloud computing is by far the incumbent. And, uh, you know, something like 90% of the market is among those three players. They also happen to be three of the five largest companies by market cap, right? Um, and there's no, there's almost nobody has managed to try and beat them at their game because it's such a capital intensive game, right? So we're sort of in this situation where globally, more and more data is being created, more and more data is being stored with three largest players, which sort of created three Rockefellers, if you will, and data is the new oil. Um, meanwhile, um, prices, unsurprisingly, have not come down, right? In, in five years, basically, the price of, uh, you know, storing a gig of data has only gone down by about 10% the, in the public cloud. Meanwhile, well, why is that? I think it's all about play, right? It's, you've, got, you've got three big players. They have no incentive to lower prices because as soon as one of them lowers, you know, when, when Google entered the market, prices went down and then they stopped, right? Because I think any one of them lowers prices and the others match. Um, uh, and, so basically, and also, by, by, by avoiding lowering the price, you avoid the race to zero. Exactly. So they're they're avoiding the race to zero, um, and and you know to be fair, there are you know cloud storage costs a lot of money to deliver because you have to build big data centers and you have to power them and provide you know virus suppression all these other sorts of things. But meanwhile, you know as big as cloud storage is, uh, you know it's dwarfed by the amount of storage that's in disks all over the planet. Um, you know something again like eighty percent of them are are less than twenty five percent full. Um, and it takes no more power or people or energy or capital to take all those drives that are out there and 
you know, start using the unused 75% capacity that they have. So ah, that's a business idea, right? Um, and, 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 you know, at some level, we're basically like a massive Airbnb for disk drives, only instead of having people, um, you know, rent out spare rooms in their houses, they, they rent out spare space on their, on their disk drives. So what I want to do real quick is yeah. uh, help people understand conceptually how uh, a decentralized uh, storage network works. And uh, in order to do that, um, maybe we can take two seconds and just describe a data center. And so for those that don't know, uh, there are massive computing facilities all over the world. Uh, these facilities basically build um, you know, the physical structure. They put computers, they put storage uh, hardware uh, in those facilities. And then they have sales forces that try to go out and get customers. And so right. that model um, is can be very profitable if done well. Uh, but just like any business, uh, when you go to the convenience store, uh, you don't have everyone buying all of the products in the convenience store at all times. So there's things that are sitting idle or in this world, uh, it is computing power or storage that is unused. And so this idea of a decentralized uh, storage network is basically uh, Ben, the team at storage, has come up with an incentive mechanism to get the unused storage to come up for availability through a, a digital means. And then people who need storage can go in and basically purchase some of the unused storage at a high level accurate. And you're, you're the expert yeah. here, but is that direction? No, no, no. I mean, high level, you're really accurate. You know, the only thing I think I, I would uh, sort of uh, clarify is that the drives that we're using aren't necessarily in, uh, in the data center. Right? So we've got, we've got some people who have, you know, we've got companies who have data centers, we've got universities who have data centers. Uh, you've also got lots of individuals who are running computers in their basements. Um, and all of those, you know, people in rural parts of the world that have, you know, have a, have a disk drive, right? All of those can be part of our storage network, and they all are. Right? So we've got um, something like 10,000 drives all around the world, or 10,000 people all around the world operating drives in like 85 countries. Um, and, you know, collectively, they've created a pretty massive storage network. And... Uh, if you are storing a data with us, instead of us storing it on, you know, one drive that we control, we sort of split it up into pieces and we run it across large numbers of drives run by lots of different people all over the world. That not only good economically, it also turns out to be really good for privacy, for cost, for performance, all that And so the customer experience, from what I understand, is almost identical to what you would do with a centralized service, right? You go to a website, you say, hey, I need to spin up some storage. You basically purchase that. And uh, what happens from that point through a centralized and a decentralized service is different, but right. for the customer, um, it, it's pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, that was our intent. Our intent was to say that for, for as far as our customers are concerned, we should just be a really fast, really secure, really cheap, um, uh, um, really useful way of doing storage that doesn't require them to change the way that they operate. So we've got, you know, we've got lots of people doing cool decentralized apps on us. We also have, you know, massive numbers of people who are doing traditional apps on us that just happen to be doing it now that decentralized way. Got it. And so then what is the economic benefit? Because that's ultimately the people who have this unused storage and they're kind of offering it up. I, I love the example of Airbnb. These are the people who have a home and they want somebody to come stay in it, right? right, right exactly right. Uh, Talk about kind of the economic uh, difference. Obviously, you're competing with zero, right? So they get nothing for their unused stuff without you. Right. How, how much can they make, or or how does that work from uh from sure. if, um you you actually send them somebody to uh, to use as a customer? Sure, sure. So basically, uh, what uh, if if you're a, a storage node operator or a, we call them snows, um, you basically you know download some code onto your onto your drive, if you will. Um, 
And for the most part, stuff happens in the background. You don't even have to pay attention, right? Um, uh, and again, you're not spending additional money on power or equipment or people to do this. Um, what we do as our economic model is we quote prices to our customers. And um, in essence, about 60% of what we make from our customers goes back to the network. And so as a storage node operator, we quote you a price based off of how much data you're storing and how much data you're serving up. Um, and you know, depending on the size of your <coughs> size of your drive and how much you're storing, um, you know, you can make five, ten dollars a month per drive, right? Um, so it's not, you know, it's not a, a standalone business like being a miner, um, but for many people, it's a great way of monetizing their energy capacity. Um, and unlike being a miner, it doesn't take a lot of power, it doesn't take a lot of effort, it doesn't, you know, we we designed this so that it's doesn't take specialized equipment to do um, that. This is an incentive model for, <coughs> excuse me, for the, for the for the rest of us, right? Um, and so, as a result, we we've got a really broad group of, of storage node operators who are happily being part of this. And of course, we we compensate them in our token, which is uh, STORJ. And so, this is something that can be spun up pretty quickly. Right, if I have unused storage, and I can actually spin it down as well. Let's say if I need the storage or something like that, also. Yeah, right? it's pretty absolutely. responsive. That's right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, now, now your your sort of your reputation, if you will, is based off of uh, things like uptime um, and uh, how long you store. But if you are, let's say, a data center that has equipment that sits idle for most of the year, but you need to reclaim it uh, you know, around the holiday shopping season or something like that, that's fine. We, we have we have ways for you to sort of tell us, hey, I need to reclaim my space and you push the data to us and push it to other people. Got it. And so the part of this conversation I'm really, really interested in is yeah. uh, I'm going to uh, say, hey, Ben and the rest of the team, uh, they know what they're doing. They're going to execute perfectly uh, and they're going to yeah. end up being, you know, really, really successful beyond their wildest dreams. What does this do to the, uh, the centralized players and how does the market you know, forces change and, and kind of the competitive landscape uh, if that occurs. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, what, you know, we are able to price profitably to ourselves, right? It's something like a third of what the um, cloud providers do today, right? And as as and and I think as important as the fact that we can we can price that way over time, economics should help us bring prices down, right? There's more and more data, more and more drives get shipped all the time, and all the things that we care about, right? Our economics, our performance, our security, uh, they all get better and better the larger and larger our network gets. Um, so what we think, or we certainly hope this does, it actually does disrupt the market. And we'll probably be ignored for some period of time, right? But um, uh, eventually I think there needs to be a, a challenge to the large players. And unlike, you know, unlike the other people who try to go into centralized computing, right? I mean, you know, Big players like Oracle and IBM and others have tried to enter the cloud computing space, and even they don't have the massive amounts of capital and data centers to compete against the Amazons. Right? I mean, you know, the the closest competitor that the big three have is Alibaba, who's you know whatever number six <laughs> in terms of market cap. Right. So, uh, the, I think the only way that you can compete against the large folks and disrupt them is through decentralization, and that's true for us in storage, but also you know, on the compute side as well. There are lots of really interesting decentralized compute companies and decentralized networking companies. 
Yeah, and, and, re and really the advantage you have is you can have a price that is, you know, 66% lower, you know, give or take, because right. you don't have all of the infrastructure costs and all the expenses that take to build out the storage, right? You're basically just tapping into unused storage that other people have, uh, and it costs you nothing um, to, yeah. uh, to actually tap into it. That, absolutely right. Um, I mean, and, and, and also, we've, we've managed to, you know, not only build the equivalent of some really large data centers, but do it all around the world. Right, so that we now have the ability to offer cloud storage to people in Kenya, right? Uh, only if you're getting, uh, if you're going to be getting movies served from us, they're going to be coming from Nairobi, not from Nebraska, right? So it's also faster. Um, Absolutely. And then talk a little bit about um, as you're doing this. What stops them from going into and trying to do a decentralized option, right? Can the Amazons, uh, the Googles, like, is that the the kind of natural step for them to try to compete as they uh, start to feel threatened by you? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's like most disruptive technologies, right? The incumbents don't don't tend to tend to do it because they've they've got something that works really really well, right? Um, and then they they have all of their advantages, you know, their data centers and you know their uh, you know, their ability to operate on razor thin margins uh, on equipment and their power suppression and their power supplies and their power spread. Also, that doesn't help them in competing with us. Right. Uh, and so eventually, maybe they will. Um, but I think uh, at that point, we will, we will have achieved our end. We will have built a great business. We'll have, we'll have, and we'll have gotten uh, some incumbency advantages as well. I mean, doing, doing what we do is has really powerful economics, but there's also, as you can imagine, uh, different challenges. How do you keep it coordinated? How do you make sure the files don't get lost? How do you make sure that you keep the incentive structure right? How do you make sure there's the right balance between people who want to provide storage and people who want to consume storage? Absolutely. And then talk a little bit about, um, obviously, as you're doing this decentralized network, uh, people have to get paid, right? And so um, there's this uh, storage token, right? S-T-O-R-J, uh, I think right. is what it is. Um, and there you know, these tokens have become controversial in the uh, crypto industry. Uh, sure. The Bitcoin community thinks, you know, why not use Bitcoin? Uh, everybody else thinks, why not use XYZ token? Like, just talk a little bit about um, the use of this payment via a digital token or digital currency, and then kind of why create your own versus use one that already existed. Sure, sure. So we... Um uh, you know, and as I said, sort of clarify, you know, at, least, at least the way our, our economic model works right now, we quote prices in dollars, both, both for customers and for uh, the snows, for the suppliers. Uh, and then customers can either pay us in fiat or in our token. Uh, and our suppliers get paid in token and we do a sort of spot conversion based off of, off of the existing price. Um, uh, but there are a lot of reasons why it's, it's great for us. First of all, again, we're, we're now paying thousands of people in 85 plus countries. Right, uh, sometimes small amounts, sometimes large amounts. Being able to do it with uh, using our token, being able to do, use things like smart contracts, really, really critical. Um, we've also programmatically built in not only on the supply side but on the demand side. So we've uh, we've built a program we call it the Open Source Partner Program that also kind of turns things on the head in terms of the demand side. So rather than hiring lots of salespeople, as you talked about, the centralized people doing, and then you know essentially you know what the cloud providers tend to do with the open source community is take great open source code, uh, give it away for free, you know, as a loss leader to drive more compute and storage and networking. We actually compensate the open source company, uh, uh, companies. So if they send users and data our way, we send money back to them and we do it programmatically using the code. Um, 
So for us, it makes the system work much faster, much more reliably. Of course, we've, we've, we funded our initial efforts um, to a large extent uh, based off of having a successful token sale back in, in May of 2017. Um, and uh, for us, it's the right way to do things. Uh, it also gives us um, an opportunity also to sort of further differentiate ourselves. We're, we're trying to be um, not only sort of enterprise grade in terms of our storage, but also enterprise grade in terms of the governance and management of our company. Got it. And so do you feel like uh, eventually um, this is going to force kind of digital currencies, what regardless of which one it ends up being, uh, yeah. into um, kind of this entire cloud and storage world where whether you are a decentralized or centralized platform, like they've got to support it? Or do you feel like you've got kind of an advantage and kind of a wedge into a market where that's not going to happen for a long time and, and you guys will kind of enjoy the, the first mover advantage there? Uh, yes, it, it, it's a good question. I mean, we... Uh... Uh, you know, I don't know whether the uh, the crypto aspect of what we do ends up being a barrier to entry or not. Um, I suspect that if it does, it's it's less important than the decentralized aspect of what we do, right? I, I, I mean, I we sort of internally say, uh, you know, um, you know, blockchain is much bigger than cryptocurrency. Decentralization is much bigger than blockchain, and we think that sort of like decentralized infrastructure in general is is much bigger than any of them. There, that, that's really the powerful thing is that you give tools that push things to the edge, if you will, and push push infrastructure into the hands of you know thousands, hopefully soon millions of people, you know, around the planet, um, and that that's really the big disruption. And and cryptocurrency and blockchain, these are all sort of primitives that enable that, but they're not the main story. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's really interesting just in computing in general to me is uh, the centralized players have been trying to build kind of pseudo-decentralized networks that they control, right? What I mean by that is all of yeah. these POPs and kind of localized uh, data centers right. and, and kind of infrastructure that, uh, for those that are unfamiliar with the space, uh, they basically are just pushing infrastructure from rather than having one data center in the U.S. or, or, or in one area, how do we kind of break it up and put it closer to the user, but they still control it? It exactly. feels like it's already moving in the direction of decentralization from an infrastructure standpoint, just the ownership has stayed centralized. You guys really are saying, hey, we have decentralized ownership of the network and we have decentralized infrastructure and therefore that's the advantage, right? Right, right. And also we've designed things so that, you know, we're not a central point of failure, right? So for example, like if you're storing data with us, we don't have any of the keys. We have no way of knowing what's being stored, uh, no way of mining it, no way of uh, compromising it. And, and the same thing true for the storage node operators. So, you know, one sort of sort of clarification about how things work with us. If you upload a file to us to store it with us, it gets encrypted, so scrambled up with keys that only you have. It then gets split up into lots of pieces, uh, generally about 80 pieces, of which any 30 can be used to put it back together. And each of those 80 pieces goes to a different drive run by a different person on a different power supply in a different geographic location. And that level of decentralization does magic in terms of security, magic in terms of performance, magic in terms of, uh, of economics as well, right? Um, and, and that's really the key, right? It's not that we have created a network where we push stuff out to the edge. We've enabled the network that's <laughs> at the edge. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and to me, like, you know, 
I'm biased because uh, sure. I kind of understood this more and more and more, but uh, it just feels like naturally this is where the world has to head, right? Like, like you guys are just yeah. ahead, ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think it has to, right? And I think, I think this decentralized approach is really the only way to create a viable alternative to the centralized providers. And as good a job they do. And by the way, they, they, they offer great services, right? But, um, you know, again, if, if data is the new oil, we don't, we don't, want, we don't want another uh, Rockefeller, if you will. And, it, and it's just it's a bad thing if if cloud computing, which is the most important computing trend, uh, is dominated by you know three of the five largest companies by market cap, that's, and nobody else can get in. That that's just, that's a bad bad situation. Where do you go from here in terms of uh, you have to have the storage network? Do you eventually go and compete on other aspects of computing using the same model? A a absolutely, absolutely. So I um, mean, you know, right now. You know, we think that there are so many other, there are lots of great companies that are trying to solve the decentralized compute problem. And so, you know, right now we're sort of in partnership mode um, and maybe continuing in partnership mode, maybe we introduce it at some point. Uh, there's, a, there's a long road that we need, that uh, a long roadmap in front of us in terms of taking uh, the storage that we have right now, which is primarily uh, used for sort of like fast backup and uh, things like that and extending it to, Content delivery and to compliance storage and all these sorts of things. But absolutely, you know, compute, network, and storage are basically the three things that are, you know, cloud computing. And if you can provide those primitives well in a decentralized way, that 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 disrupts the market. And you know, we've already found a great way of getting compatibility through providing an incentive structure for open source in the same way that you know we provide an incentive structure for uh, storage and operators. And so when you built the kind of decentralized storage network, you obviously, you obviously have to go find these people. You have to explain it to them. You've got to get them onboarded, kind of all that stuff. Uh, would it be fair to say that um, those same people who are providing storage today could be the starting point of the network for computing or, or, or uh, networking and, and kind of these other services? And therefore, it's almost like yeah. by building the first network, then the second, third, fourth, and fifth get easier and easier over time? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, so... If you're if you're running a, a drive, uh, you that, that drive already has some compute power in it, um, and it's got some connectivity, so it's already kind of got like networking and uh, compute in it. Now there's, there's there's different technical challenges to do compute securely and to do networking the right way, um, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, you know the other sort of there's also a whole bunch of other learnings that you just have to get around. How do you run a decentralized network? How do you keep how do you keep supply and demand in 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 check? I mean that that's one of the, I think the biggest challenges that uh, you know doing what we do uh, has with it. In the same way, that, like you know, if you're Uber or Lyft, you know you want to have enough cars on the road so that uh, anybody can always get a ride, but you don't want so many cars on the road that nobody gets a, a fare. Right? <laughs> um, and so we're the same thing. I mean, want to make sure that enough, there's enough capacity out there so that anybody wants to store things on, but that you know people aren't sitting sitting idle. And is it also true on the customer side? So if I'm a customer of your decentralized storage, then I probably also am the most likely to convert on decentralized computing and other services as well. So it kind of becomes lower cost I, I, of acquisition. I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, uh, you know, what, what, is, what is true though right now is that um, is we have a lot of people who are doing really cool decentralized apps on us. And we can talk about that in a bit, but... Um, still, the bulk of our customers are people who are 
running more traditional apps. They just want a better alternative than storing the data uh, at the cloud providers. Right? Um, uh, but you know, I, I think what you tend to see in technology in general, right, is that you know even the early adopters start with you know low um, low risk workloads, and when you do a good job with them, then they start going going upstream, and that's that's kind of the classic you know disruptive approach. You you offer something that's radically better for a small number of use cases that the big folks don't care about, and once once people get used to that, then Suddenly, you get more and more use cases, and higher and higher use cases, and before you know it, you know people who are ignoring you are chasing after you. I was walking you into explaining that you're essentially putting the big guys in the innovators' dilemma, right? Which is absolutely, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they can't, uh, they, they can't come do what you're doing because it would be a distraction. It doesn't look interesting, you know, whatever. Yep. But you get to uh, continue to kind of eat the stack of uh, infrastructure, right? So on the kind of supply side, and then yep. as you start to source demand, you essentially just eat more and more of their computing needs. Uh, yep. And next thing you know, you back into the centralized players not being in a very good position. That's that's right, and and you know, honestly, that you know. They, they, they follow the innovator's dilemma too, right? I mean, you know, it, you know, 12 years ago, people say, wait, 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 store data in a data center run by somebody else? That's crazy, crazy talk. Um, uh, and they start, you know, low-end use cases and move their way up, and we're doing the same thing. And, you know, if you read Innovator's Dilemma, you know that the 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 case study that, that uh, Clayton Christensen did was on storage. Because the storage industry is just, it's, it's, it's this, this history of uh, innovators' dilemmas all the time. Well, we, uh, I'm cheering for you. I hope that that is what, uh, where the world is going. I, I do too, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's an exciting time. And I think, uh, if you're going to go into, into startups and again, this is my eighth startup, right? You, you've got to do something that you think is going to be fun and meaningful, even if it isn't a commercial success. Absolutely. Before we get into uh, the rapid fire to uh, to wind this down, uh, I want to talk about real world use cases. And, and obviously, um, you have so many uh, customers kind of on each side of the marketplace. Maybe talk right. through you know one or two examples of uh, of the types of um, infrastructure providers and the types of companies that are actually using this. Sure, sure, sure. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk about um, customers, the people who are actually storing data with us, right? Um, and it's a pretty broad group of people. Um, uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've got people who are storing video and, and, uh, and, and photos and things like that. And, and we give them a fast, easy way to share data. We're seeing a lot of usage among academic, uh, data sets right now, right? Where, you know, you've got a massive data set of, let's say, climate data or, uh, energy data, you know, or health data. And you want to be able to share that securely with large numbers of people to make it really fast to get it out there. We're just an excellent solution for doing that because it's, it's it's very secure, very durable, and yet the data can get extremely fast to everybody who wants to use it. Um, we're also seeing some more, uh, you know, more relevant to probably the area that you, you spent, uh, spend time in. We've got a few people who are actually using us as a way to get blockchain data distributed. So blockchains themselves are pretty massive, right? And and in an ideal world, it's really easy for anybody who's running a node uh, um, to be able to get the entire blockchain and get it quickly. Um, so, you know, Ethereum Classic wrote about how they're using us, but uh, lots of others were using us as well um, to get uh, get data out there and get it get it uh, distributed quickly and, and securely. Um, uh, interestingly, part of what you get when you do decentralized storage is you get this massive improvement in privacy and security. So as I mentioned, you know every file 
that gets uploaded to us gets encrypted before it gets uploaded, then gets split up into 80 pieces, each of which goes to a different drive on the network that only knows that they have a piece. And so if a hacker wanted to get at that file, they'd have to find 80 drives out of, you know, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands, compromise each one. All they would get would be an encrypted file. And even if they managed to somehow decrypt that, the next file they go after is going to be different. So if you're storing like, you know, really sensitive personal data, we're a great solution. Uh, you, know, you remember a few years ago, Equifax got breached, you know, so millions of people's personal data got compromised because one you know, incompetent administrator at Equifax configured a print server incorrectly. Um, with us, that just can't happen, right? Not only can, can we screw up, but you can't screw up as, a, as an end user, right? And it is monster. So that's, those are the kinds of use cases that we're seeing is highly secure, highly fast, highly private data that needs to get stored and distributed globally is sort of our, our sweet spot. And are there situations where companies are choosing kind of centralized and decentralized uh, solutions side by side? So I may be a company, yeah. I've got some storage you know, needs, uh, and I may actually split this between both centralized and decentralized. Um, yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so um, you know, most of our, our customers, you know, right now have some data that they're storing locally in their own data center. And then some data that they're storing, let's say, at an Amazon or a Google or, a, or a, uh, you know, or, or Microsoft. Um, and generally speaking, what they will do with us is they'll say, okay, I'm going to give you 10% of my data and I'm going to try you out. And so, uh, you know, every day as I'm running jobs and I'm creating data, I'm going to push my, my backups to you or my snapshots to you and see how you do. And then over time, what they're, what they're seeing is, gosh, this is great. Rather than giving you 10% of the new data I create, let me give you 50, 70% of the data that I create. And then at some point, they may take the data that they're currently storing in Amazon and Google and us, and that's, that'll be great. But, um, you know, what I think is uh, a sort of an important truism is that if you're going to be doing something disruptive, it can be disruptive, but you don't want to be, you don't want your customers to experience it in a revolutionary way. You want to give them the opportunity to experience it in an evolutionary way. Because... So explain, explain, explain that. That is very, very good advice, but explain that. Sure. I, I mean, we as a brand new company can take on lots and lots of risks, right? If we're, if, if our, but our customers, um, you know, most customers don't want to have to change what they're doing in order to get advantage, right? I mean, to ask a customer to completely change everything that they do, how they write their code, how they, how they store it, what their risk profile is, is, is asking a lot. Right. And so what we'd like to do is be able to give people, you know, the ability to say, hey, I'm going to change three lines of code. Suddenly I'm, I'm using storage and it's cheaper, faster, better, more secure. I love it. And I'm going to evolve to do more and more over time with, with us. And, you know, the more they do with us, the more uh, benefit they can get. But asking them to sort of change their world for us is, is, a, is a non starter that uh, that makes sense. What's the biggest challenges uh, as you guys kind of move forward? Like what what do you spend your time thinking the most about that you guys need to either solve for um, or, or kind of come up with solutions? Uh, sure. I mean, so we you know we we spent a, a ton of time making sure that we offered a centralized storage solution that was you know high availability, high performance, had a large enough number of nodes, um, ran really well. We actually had a year long beta process. Uh, you know, we didn't lose a single file, which was important for us, but you know, making sure that what we were offering was rock solid. We, 
the last thing we wanted to do was sort of be the first to market with a decentralized storage system, have people get excited about it, and then and then fail. Because we wouldn't just be failing for ourselves, we'd be failing for the whole industry. Um, uh, so we spend a lot of time doing that. We spend a lot of time on incentives. Uh, we want to make it really, you have the right incentives in place for people who are running the nodes so that they're profitable and easy and they're not and they're not disappointed by what they have. And then also that we don't set the wrong incentives, right? We don't want to incent bad behavior. That would be simple. Um, and then a lot of it is, you know, the normal blocking and tackling, building a great company, building a great culture, uh, building a great community. Um, and, you know, that's that's a challenge. It's also really fun. Because ultimately, the community is so much larger than the company, and the company is so much larger than the individual. That's, that's how you got to think about things. That's a great way to look at it. Uh, I asked the same two questions to everybody, and then you'll get to ask me one to uh, to finish up. Uh, the first one is, what is the most important book that you've ever read? Uh, well, we talked about one of them already, which was the Innovative Dilemma, so that's great. Uh, uh, and lately, I, I've uh, I've been rereading uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I don't know if you know what you're called with it. Well, why do you like that one so much? Um. <laughs> I think you know we're living in like unusually difficult times, and and I and I think uh, you know a you know having the perspective of people who were facing challenges that just sort of swamp anything we're dealing with. I mean, you know, yeah, it's annoying to have to uh, to sit on your butt and watch Tiger King, but that's not the biggest sacrifice that most people in the world have to make. But um, you know, to, to understand how to sort of accept the situation you're in and yet still have hope. And I think is really, really important. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think in times like this, I, I, I find that an inspirational book. And also understand the importance of being sort of kind to each other and having broader broader meaning in your life. I think part of how you get through difficult times like we're going through is, is to, you know, work on something that's larger than yourself. Um, so you'll love the second question. It's a little bit more fun, but Man's Search for Meaning has a connection here, which is Aliens. Uh, oh, believer, okay. believer or non-believer? Uh, I absolutely believe that there's life teeming in the universe and that there's lots of intelligent life. Uh, I'm not convinced that they've come to visit Earth, and certainly 2020, I'm sure there's if they are out there, they're staying far, far away. <laughs> uh, I uh, I've always thought about like, do we want to find them or do we want them to find us? Right? Usually, in, at least in human <laughs> history, like the the conqueror has has prevailed. Uh, yeah, but I don't know in, in 2020, like this is probably not the planet you want to just jet on over to if, uh, if you had a choice. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. The, the alien Cortez equivalents is looking at us and saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. We'll wait till 2021 to go visit we'll them. Wait till 2021, yeah. You could ask me one question to finish up. What, uh, what one question do you have for me? Um, so what's next after DeFi? What are you most excited about? Look, I, I think um, I'm very convinced that centralization has now become a business risk, obviously. Um, and so whether that is centralization of your infrastructure, like what you guys are going after, um, centralization of kind of financial services. So everything from Bitcoin on down to some of the, the more nuanced DeFi stuff um, is kind of the where the world is headed. Uh, one of the things that is um, really, really interesting to me as a concept is this idea that uh, we have entire uh, frameworks, currencies, rules, etc., uh, for every economy and every uh, kind of business, um, you know, market. 
but they're all tied to, you know, essentially imaginary lines on a map, right? right. So they're all fit like physical location based type world. Um, and in some weird, uh, potentially wrong, but, but still kind of exciting world, uh, I kind of think of it as like you and I uh, both left our geographic locations today and we yeah. met in the internet you know, sure. economy, right? And yeah. so we're, we're doing this virtually. And so it's kind of like Ready Player One style, you know, <laughs> like, like you're, you're going into this like internet economy or this internet world. Um, and so when you think of it that way, uh, and you kind of take, you know, pre-COVID, all the things you would do, right? So everything from, you might go to a happy hour with your uh, colleagues, you had to go to work, um, you know, you'd go to your kid's ball game, like, like you kind of just walk through every single, you know, daily activities. What percent and which ones are going to end up in this like internet world. So yeah. you're obviously not going to be able to virtually attend your kids virtual baseball game. Like that might right. be a little weird, right? Yeah. Uh, at least in the short term. Um, and so like some of it is not going to kind of, you know, be, be brought into this. Yeah. But when you start to bring some of this in, so meetings is the, the easy example for everybody. Sure. There's entirely new businesses. There's all kinds of decentralization, you know, benefits. Like, there's just a lot that would change. And I think that for you and I, who you know generally are technology minded, have kind of been paying attention to a lot of these trends. If anything, it just accelerated things we kind of already knew were underway. But I think a lot about like you know restaurants. Like all of a sudden, a lot of restaurants were like, oh, this digital thing's gonna happen. You know, five or ten years from now, and like we just got a website, right? Yeah. Like no, now now it's here. No, now and it got it's here, here like overnight. It's accelerated everything, right? Yeah. And and so you know th those are like digital examples. I also think that you start to um, break down this idea of like if companies start to pursue more resilience um, uh, and not just efficiency, they're going to onshore a lot of things, right? So you're going to see all kind of manufacturing, supply chains, like all that stuff. Um, and so in that trend. Uh, American labor is actually pretty expensive compared to where they've been able to outsource it. And so the unit economics get thrown off. And so I think like there'll be this resurgence of, um, I don't know, like 3D manufacturing and automation and kind of all these things that allow technology to, to kind of bring the cost of that stuff back down, but based here in, uh, in North America. And so when you think of that, like, we, do we have enough people to do that? Like that are skilled? I, I don't know. Right. And so I don't, I don't know. It's just things like that I spend time thinking about. And it's probably uh, intellectually uh, stimulating for me because there's not a right answer. Right. So like you can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. But for you guys, right, it's like a perfect, you know, uh, tailwind. Right. Because basically everyone's going to need storage. Everyone's going to need computing power. And kind of you'll benefit from this digitization of everything, really. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> there are other uh, things. If you're going to go into a startup, you should. You should be have the waves moving in your direction, right? Not, 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 not go against them, right? And like I say, so yeah, death, taxes, and data, and the cloud all sort of pretty clear. I I forget who says it, but somebody's like, uh, you know, uh, good team, bad market, market wins. Uh, okay team, good market, market wins, right? And so it's yeah. kind of like, you know, just make sure you're rowing in the direction of uh, of where the waves are going. You'll be all right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome, Ben. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Hey. Where can people find you on the internet uh, or find out more about storage if they want to uh, go check it out? Yes, yeah, so we're, uh, we're uh, storage, S-T-O-R-J.io. Um, and uh, you know, go there if you want to become a storage operator, if you want to become a customer, or both. 
uh, great place to go. Um, and I'm at uh, uh, BE on Twitter if you want to follow me. Um, and uh, we've got great, great blogs and things like that on, on the Sports Center. Awesome, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this and we'll have to do it again in the future. Okay. Hey, thanks, man.